Thank you, worship team. Uh, Church, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, go ahead and open them with me to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should see a blue one uh, in the ch- below the chair in front of you. Please open that one up with us. Uh, Word of God is precious. It is powerful. Uh, it performs surgery on our hearts. It grows faith. Um, it starts faith anew. So let us read God's Word together. Mark chapter 9. I uh, haven't preached for two weeks, so I got a lot of pent-up stuff. We might Chiefs play at three, so we might go until two forty-five. Sound good? Uh, okay, no, we better not. We got we got one or two honest people out there. Now nah, we won't do that. We won't do that. Uh, Mark chapter nine. If you're in that blue Bible, we're going to be on page eight forty-four together. Eight forty-four. Uh, we are incredibly blessed as a church. Um, I want to say thanks to Joey Himes. He preached the first Sunday that I was gone. I want to say thanks to Darren. He preached last week. Both of them did a fabulous job as always. Aren't we blessed as a church to have uh, young men who uh, can proclaim the Word of God, love to proclaim the Word of God. So we are incredibly blessed as a congregation. Uh, I want to say thanks to Darren as well, especially while I've been gone from the office. Things have gone smoothly, maybe even more smoothly in my absence. He is a great leader, so we are blessed to have him on our staff as well. Thank you, Darren. Okay, Mark chapter 9. Would you bow with me as we begin this time before God's Word? Father God, I am grateful, especially in passages like today, that that You don't rely on my skill, my charisma, my intelligence to take Your Word and make it powerful in the hearts of these men and women that I love. Father, I'm grateful that it is Your strength, Your power, Your grace, Your mercy that does this. Father, how how in the world can can a, a man, a sinful man like me, proclaim a passage that is so filled with the glory of Jesus? Father, we just need You so desperately. Words fail us. Imagination fails us to see truly how glorious Jesus is. And so Father, as we dive into this so such an important passage, Father, if there's someone here who doesn't know how glorious Jesus is, Father, may they see that clearly in Your Word. Would You do that for us? And Father, if there's those among us who are believers but are struggling with, an assur- with assurance, Struggling with assurance that God, does God really love me? Am I really right with God? If they struggle with that, Father, may they see the glory of Jesus clearly and may that burden be lifted from them. Father, for our kids who are here today, may they, may they continue, will you continue to reveal to them what the good news of Jesus is all about and how awesome he is? Father, please guide us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 9, big number 9, little number 1. Well, you probably don't have a little number 1. Big number 9, and in a moment we'll go and read together to little number 13. Uh, We're going to be talking about the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. Uh, Glory, we might not quite grasp what glory is, but when I glorify something, when I glorify someone, I am trying to pull the curtain away to reveal how valuable they truly are. What's the best way to do that? 
We've seen in the book of Mark that Jesus has showed us His glory in the miracles that He's done, in the teaching that He's given us. We begin to see the curtain pulled away. But here in Mark chapter 9, we're going to see that curtain removed. And we're going to see with the disciples' own eyes how glorious Jesus really is. That's what glory means. It's, it's like this. It's a little bit like this. Let me glorify Patrick Mahomes to you. You know who he is? Got to clap right here. My, my man. Patrick Mahomes, the Kansas City Chiefs quarterback, plays football better than anyone on the planet. It's not even an argument. Steelers fans, not even an argument. He had the third best season for a quarterback in NFL history. The second year he was in the NFL, he was the league most valuable player. The third year he was in the NFL, he won the Super Bowl and was a Super Bowl MVP. He was signed to the largest contract a sports figure has ever signed. $500 million. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. He seems like a humble and all-around good guy. When I say these things, I'm trying to pull back the curtain so you can see how valuable Patrick Mahomes is. And we do this in all areas of life. right? Kansas City, when I talk about the Kansas City Chiefs, I'm trying to glorify them and tell you how great they are. When you buy a new car, my dad bought a new truck the other day. He's talking to me on the phone about it, and I can just see him trying to pull that curtain away. And oh, look at the gas mileage. and Look how big it is. Look how shiny it is. We're trying to pull that curtain away to show how valuable it is is but really if you want to see how awesome Patrick Mahomes is how valuable he is what do you need to do you need to watch him really to get an idea about how awesome he is i didn't know how awesome my dad's truck was until what until i came i sat in it i looked at it and i touched it well what we have seen in the book of mark is the disciples are around jesus they've seen him do some amazing things the curtain has begun to pull away but do they really believe not yet. Not yet. In fact, we've seen the last few times we've been in the book of Mark that not only do they not yet believe, but when they hear about how glorious Jesus is going to be dying on the cross, what do they do? They hate it. They hate it. We're in Mark 9 and Mark chapter 8. The disciples just heard a lot of glorious news that to us we read and we see the glory in it. They received the news that Jesus is the Messiah. He will be rejected by the Jewish leaders. He will suffer under Pontius Pilate and die under Pontius Pilate and be raised again three days later. And the disciples hate this. So much that Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. The Messiah is not going to die. You're wrong. Yeah, the religious leaders don't like you right now, but they're going to come around, Jesus, because the Messiah does not get rejected by the religious leaders. That cannot happen. Jesus, you got it wrong. The Messiah is going to be Rambo. He's going to come back. He's going to kick Rome out. He's going to kill the Roman army. He's not going to be killed by the Roman army. So Jesus, so Jesus is rebuked by Peter, calls the crowd. Okay, you have a problem with the cross? If that blows your mind, 
crowd, come here. Disciples, come here. If it blows your mind that I'm going to die on the cross, let me tell you, anyone who wants to follow Me must take up their own cross and follow Me. To faithfully follow Me, you must deny yourself, take up your own cross, and follow Me even to your death. And we said, that means a lot of things. That means laying down my preferences. That means laying down my desires. That means sacrificing for my family. That means a lot of those things. That's what taking up your cross means. But for people like Peter in that crowd, what did that mean? For Peter, it meant literally, you will take up your own cross. And Peter will die by crucifixion. And so that is the context. And as Jesus finishes this, He knows that the disciples, that's still a hard thing to hear. He knows they're having trouble seeing His glory through the cross. And now let's read chapter 9, verse 1 and, and on together. We're going to read for chapter 9, big number 9. That was the context. Let's see. He's still having that conversation with the crowd and with the disciples. He goes like this, and He said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You don't believe what I'm saying? Well, here's what's going to happen. Soon, some of you will see exactly what I am saying. Verse 2, And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. They were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they, they no longer saw anyone with Him, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked Him, why do the scribes say Elijah first, that first Elijah must come? And He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then, and, and how is it written? of the Son of Man, that He should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to Him whatever they pleased as it is written of Him. Okay, there's a lot going on there as we see the glory of Jesus. Do you see that, that curtain being pulled away? Do you see, you see the glory of Jesus being revealed clearly? How would you like that to happen? You just argued with Jesus a week before. That's probably still in the back of your mind. You just rebuked Him. You don't know really what's going on. And then all of a sudden, Jesus takes Peter and a couple other guys and takes him up the mountain. And what happens? You learn that you are wrong. 
you learn that you are wrong. So he starts his passage out by saying, okay, you disagree with me? Well, hey, we're going to clear this up. real. Peter, we're going to clear this up. You wait a week, it's going to be real clear to you. There's going to be some people here who will see the kingdom of God. Now, the translation from the Greek is really difficult. And so we got to have this understanding that, that he's not saying the kingdom of God is far away or you're going to see it a little bit or you're going to see it in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years before you die. He says soon. And he says you're going to see the kingdom of God has already come. The Greek wording there says, kingdom of God having already come, you will see. Some of you standing here will not have to wait until after you die to go to heaven and see the kingdom of God. You're going to see it with your own eyes here. In other words, some of you doubters, Peter, will see firsthand that I am who I say that I am. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do, whether you like it or not. And so six days later, Peter takes, or Jesus takes his inner three. There was the twelve, and then there was Jesus' best of best friends, Peter and James and John. And he takes them up the mountain, and he was transfigured. Do you use that word a lot in your everyday life? No, I don't, I don't either. Transfigured. What is he talking about there? What does that look like? Transfigured. The Greek word there is where we get the word metamorphosis. You know that word metamorphosis? When a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, it's a metamorphosis. It's a transfiguration. Something from inside has changed his outside. Something from the na- who the nature of Jesus is has been fully revealed. The curtain has been pulled away and we see the very nature of who Jesus really is. It's an outward change that comes from within. We must be very careful. Nothing new happened to Jesus. He didn't just then become God. Or He didn't just then become the Son of Man. Or through His obedience, He didn't earn anything. It didn't change. No, this is revealing who He is. The curtain has been pulled away. He's been transfigured before them. And His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Radiant. The word here is describing a piece of metal being polished so effectively and so harshly that when you finish polishing it, to look at it is so bright. The sun reflects on it, you can't even look at it. That's how radiant his clothes were. And you can kind of feel Mark struggling to describe this because he says it's white, but not just white, but more white than anyone can bleach clothes, but not just that, but it's just unbelievably white, otherworldly white. It's like a whole nother color. White doesn't quite grasp it. I like what the book of Matthew says about this event. The book of Matthew says it this way, His face shined like the sun. So bright, you can't look at it. Is there anything brighter than the sun? Is there anything more glorious than the sun? No. It's light. His face shone like the sun. And then Jesus is transfigured. And then in an instant, Elijah and Moses. Two incredibly important figures for God's people. This is George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. See what I mean? 
You don't get more important than Moses and Elijah to the people of Israel, the people of God. Moses led God's people out of slavery in Egypt and towards the promised land, the land that they would claim as God's people. Moses was whom God gave the Ten Commandments. As he establishes his relationship with his people on Sinai, he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. He says, this is what God requires of us. Moses, the man who sets up the sacrificial system, this is how we maintain a relationship with God. When we sin, there must be a shedding of blood to cover our sin. God sets up this sacrificial system through Moses. Through Moses. Moses, who prophesies about the coming Messiah. One is going to come who's like me. He you shall listen to. And then Elijah, eminently important and popular prophet, miracle worker, thus saith the Lord. All the prophets were represented by Elijah. And these men represented the entire Word of God at this point. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses is the law of God. And then Elijah represents the prophets of God. The rest of the Old Testament calling God's people back to a right relationship. Moses, the law. Elijah, the prophets. The entire Word of God was there before the disciples. And both of these men we should expect to see in this situation because both of these men had interesting deaths. Elijah never died. God took him. Moses died. God took the body, buried it on His own. So the, so the Jewish people saw these two interesting ways of not dying and dying and said, man, they're going to come back. Here they are. Here they are. And these two men, Jesus transfigured, Elijah, Moses, and they're talking. What are they talking about? Mark doesn't tell us what they're talking about. Luke tells us what they were talking about. Luke 9.31 says they were talking about Jesus' imminent departure in Jerusalem. What are they talking about? They're talking about the cross. Isn't that something? Would you like to be a fly on the wall for that conversation? What are they doing? And this is all speculation, so this is not the Word. We don't know what's going on here. But can you imagine Jesus? You, remember, you know the pressure that He's under. So much pressure that he's going to begin to, to sweat drops of blood. The capillaries in his forehead and his head are going, to, are going to rupture and he's going to sweat drops of blood because he's going to be under so much pressure. Perhaps these two men were there encouraging him. Wouldn't that be something? Perhaps they were there praising him. Glorifying him. Encouraging him as he moved towards his excruciating death, taking on the wrath of God for the faithful. And this is why we know that this is why Peter, James, and John they recognized these men because they didn't know who they were. There were no photographs, there were no drawings. They lived. Uh, Moses lived thousands, fourteen hundred years before Elijah lived nine hundred years before this event, and so they didn't know what they looked like. But hearing the conversations, they knew. And how did the disciples act, react to this event? They were terrified. They were terrified. Often the question comes up, why, why won't God just 
Show him, show up in this room and then take care of all of this. I'll never doubt again. We often say that. You know one of the reasons God doesn't do that? Because it would terrify us. We'd have a heart attack. The disciples knew Jesus. They knew He was a good man. They knew He wasn't going to hurt them. They knew He was a good rabbi who loved them, and yet they were terrified. They were terrified. And so what does Peter do? I love Peter. Peter just is my, he's my homeboy. He, he talks like I do. He thinks like I do. Do you ever talk when you're scared? You're like, you're terrified. You don't know what to do, so you just talk. Or you're like, Peter's one of those guys that talks when he's scared. He talks when he's confused. He probably talks when he's asleep. You know, he always wants to interject something. And so he's terrified. He goes, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us do something for you. Let me make you a tabernacle. I'll make them a tabernacle and it'll be good. Let's do that. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This should make us feel so much better about ourselves that God still loves us no matter what. Can This trio of two of the most important men who have ever lived and the most important man who ever lived, the Savior of the world, God in flesh, they're having a conversation. Jesus is being encouraged by these men and then Peter goes bumbling into that conversation. Uh, uh, guys, I'm glad I'm here. Don't forget and Let me do some stuff for you. Almost in response to Peter's bumbling, almost in, you think, Peter, that you need to build something for them. You need to do, you need to contribute here. Sort of a sense of you need to build a tabernacle for Jesus. You need to do something. Let me show you what we can do. You need a tabernacle. Here's a tabernacle. Whoosh! And the three men were engulfed in the cloud of the glory of God. Jesus doesn't need a man-made tent to cover him. He's covered by the glory of God. Jesus doesn't need our contributions to His mission. Cloud descended and covered Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Boom! The tent of the cloud of the glory of God. And then there... The three of them must be looking in. The three disciples must be looking in because the voice comes from outside, from, from within the cloud to outside the cloud. The voice says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And if you're Peter, you're remembering a week ago where you not only were not listening, you were rebuking Jesus. That's sinful for you to say that, Jesus. That's wrong for you to say that, Jesus. That's foolish for you to say that you're going to die on the cross, Jesus. you got to think that's got to be back in your mind. This is my son. Listen to him, Peter. Listen to him, James. Listen to him, John. And suddenly, as suddenly as it comes, it's gone. And Jesus is there. As He always has been to them since before that day. And as they're descending the mountain, Jesus tells them what we've often heard Him. He's very discerning about who hears the, the Gospel at this point because it can be very confusing to people. 
Very discerning who can hear. And so he warns them, do not tell anyone. But now for the first time in Mark, now we've got an end date to that silence. He says, don't, don't go telling everybody until I raise from the dead. So Christian, our job is clear. Do not reveal the glory of God until He rises from the dead. So what's our job now? As disciples of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, what's our job? He's already rose from the dead. Declare the glory of God. There's nothing stopping us. Should nothing stop us. And as they're walking down the mountain, they still have questions. They still have questions. We just saw Elijah... The scribes and the Pharisees know that they teach us that Malachi, there's a prophecy that says Elijah is going to come first and then the day of the Lord is going to come. And so we're confused, Jesus. We just saw Elijah. What more is there to do? What more is there to do? We saw the kingdom of God in all its glory and all its power. What is left? Underneath that question... Jesus answers for us, fills in the blank if we are careful readers. What's under that is revealed to us. They're still talking about the cross. Jesus. Scribes and the Pharisees tell us that the Word of God says, they interpret Malachi to say, Elijah comes, then the kingdom. Why are you talking about dying on a cross? And why do you say, I'm going to have to follow you? What's left to do? Jesus says, you have the right verses. You have the wrong sequence. And you have the wrong Elijah. Yes, Scripture says Elijah will come before the Messiah and before the Kingdom. You have the wrong sequence. Elijah will show up, but that does not negate what must come after. Jesus says in verse 12, and He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And, and maybe a don't forget that the Word of God also says, the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Jesus is undoubtedly thinking of the prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah 53, He will be pierced for our sins. He will be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace with God is laid upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. So yes, Elijah will come. But the suffering must come as well. And in Matthew's account, we learn exactly who Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying Elijah has come and Jesus says John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah as the new Elijah. Not Elijah reincarnated as the new Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. To restore all things. What did John the Baptist do? He came and he called all of Jerusalem, come, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Come, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. John the Baptist is Elijah coming and preparing the way. And Jesus said, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of Him. They did to John the Baptist, the new Elijah, just what they did to the old Elijah. The old Elijah was attacked and pursued by a wicked king and queen. Do you remember what happened to John the Baptist? 
he was pursued by an evil king, Herod, and his evil wife, Herodotus. And they killed him. They did whatever they do, they'll do, they did whatever they wanted to do to Elijah, Jesus says. Well, you can't get any more of that. Do whatever you want to do than Herod and Herodotus. They imprisoned John for preaching righteousness. They cut his head off and put it on a silver platter. That's a definition of doing to somebody whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do. And so, that's what's, that's what happened. What does it mean? That's what happened. Why did it happen? What are we supposed to take from this account? What is Mark trying to tell us? There's a lot there, isn't there? That's really thick stuff. You've got to have background information. You've got to have Old Testament understanding to see it. What's Mark really getting at? I've got two things. I've got two things I want us to know from this incredible account of the transfiguration of Jesus. To see Jesus in all His glory is to see Jesus as the only one we need. To see Jesus in all His glory is to understand that He is all we need. My friends, our most desperate need is to be in right relationship with God. Are you with me? Our most desperate need is to be in right relationship with the Creator and Sustainer of the universe who has the keys to eternity. Our most desperate need is to have our sins forgiven so that we can be in right relationship with God. Are you with me? It's our most basic need. If you're sick and you get better but you don't have a right relationship with God, you need something desperately. If you have all the wealth in the world and you're not right with God, you are lost. Everything you have is worthless. Our most desperate need is to be in a right relationship with God. And then, and there's one place and two men which dominate the Jewish understanding of being in a right relationship with God. One place and two men. And this is what Mark wants us to know. That one place that signifies a right relationship with God for a Jewish person. In the Old Testament, we know the one place. And that one place is the mountain called Sinai. And on that mountain, God established His relationship with His people. The people of Israel came out of slavery. God delivered them. Moses went up to a mountain and established a covenant with a relationship with the people of God. That's where it is. Sinai is a holy place for the people of Israel. That's where God started with us. That's where God made a relationship with us. That's where God made an agreement with us. That's where we received the Ten Commandments that says this is how we obey God so that we can have a relationship with Him. This is our side of the agreement. A mountain on which God established His relationship with His people Israel. And what Mark wants us to do is not just think of this mountain here, but to make a connection to that mountain there. And as we read this account, we see so many places where Mark puts that, where Mark tries to get us to think back to Sinai. As the disciples experience a transfiguration, Mark wants our minds to travel back to Sinai and to say, that was then, here's a new Sinai. 
Mark says six days since Peter rebuked Jesus. Six days to prepare for this new Sinai. Mark never does that. Mark says things like, the next day, a couple days from now, after a time. But Mark never gets so precise, but he's precise here. Six days. Why? Because in the old Sinai, it took six days to prepare for this revelation from God. Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Peter took Peter, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Exodus 24, Moses goes up the mountain and he takes three of his inner circle, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. It's a new Sinai. The old Sinai says this, then Moses went up the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Sinai and the cloud covered it. That's the old Sinai. What do we see here? Well, Jesus, I'll, Jesus, hi, Moses and Elijah, hi. I'll do something for you. Whoosh! Cloud of the glory of the Lord. New Sinai. Peter and the disciples are terrified. If you're familiar with the account in Exodus, when the people of Israel saw the clouds and the lightning and all this stuff, and they heard that God's presence was going to be on the mountain and they're supposed to go up, what do they do? I don't want any part of that. You, you go, Moses, you go for us. That terrifies me. New Sinai. God's language He uses to call out from the cloud, this is My Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. That echoes Moses' words in Deuteronomy saying, I will not be with you forever, but there's one coming who's like Me. You must listen to Him. Old Sinai, New Sinai. Peter wants to make tabernacles like Israel had in the desert after Sinai where God's presence dwelled, where they heard from God. Peter says, well, here we go. We'll set up a new system here. Three Instead of one, we're going to do three. That's better. One, two, three. Tabernacle? Peter got it wrong. Jesus does not need a tabernacle. The cloud of the glory of the Lord will be His tabernacle. This is a better Sinai. The figure's presence, Moses, the man who represents the law of God, what we must obey, what we must pursue, the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Moses, who represents the first five books of the Old Testament. And Elijah, who, who represents the prophets. The prophets were these guys who, who were sent by God to restore the people of Israel back to Him. People of Israel would start out in a right relationship. Then they would commit spiritual adultery with other gods. Then God would send a prophet to say, you go back or bad things are going to happen. Bad things did happen because they didn't go back. And then Israel said, God, please forgive us. God forgives them, sets them back up, and this cycle goes over and over again. So the prophets were men raised up by God to call Israel back into right relationship. And Elijah represents all these men and so what we have spread out before us is where a relationship with God was set up on Sinai where we have the Ten Commandments from Moses the Word of God set out before us this is what we must do to be right with God and then you have the prophets who call us back to a right relationship with God the whole system of our religion is set out before us new, on a new Sinai we have a ta the tabernacle of God whoosh 
The man Moses is here who represents the law of God. The man Elijah who represents the prophets of God. Moses who represents the sacrificial system. The shedding of blood must cover our sins. Moses is there and his sacrificial system is there. The glory of Christ and the glory of God are swirling. You have all these things swirling. You have Sinai. You got the law. You got the prophets. You got blood covering our sin. You got all these things swirling that makes our relationship with God right. All these things swirling in the cloud and then whoop. This left is Jesus because he is all we need. Moses is gone. Ten Commandments gone. Because we know that Ten Commandments are powerless because I can't keep them. Ten Commandments gone. Jesus is there. The prophets calling us back out of this cycle. The prophets, Elijah, all the prophets were in this cycle. Come back to God. Come back to God. All of that that could not keep us straight, could not keep us right with God. Gone. Jesus is there. Sinai establishes a relationship with God. Climbing up the mountain is gone. And Jesus is there. The tabernacle, the presence of God in our lives. We used to have to go into the tabernacle, into the tent. We couldn't get too close because the glory of God was in there to melt our face off. And we'd go in. It's, it's gone. And Jesus is there. This is my son. Listen to him. Boom. And everything is gone but Jesus. God is saying, you no longer need the Ten Commandments. You can't do it. Jesus does it for you. This cycle that we all find ourselves in of, of being right with God and then sinning and going down and feeling the consequences of our sin and being brought back, that cycle, we can never be truly right with God on our own. But now, boom, Jesus is there. And He makes you right with God. The presence of God. I want the presence of God. I want to go in that tabernacle. Boom, gone. It's all Jesus now. He is the presence of God in our lives. He is the presence of God. To set up everything that we used to require to be in right relationship with God. And then to take it all away and show us Jesus. is to show us how glorious Jesus is. My friends, Jesus obeys the law of God where you could not. And He gives you His righteousness. My friends, Jesus had the perfect relationship with God that you cannot pursue on your own. And He does that in your place. My friends, you and I have no access to the temple or the tabernacle temple of Israel where God's presence was. Gone. Why? Because we no longer need a building to be in the presence of God. We have Jesus and He sends the Holy Spirit to be the presence of God in our own life. We don't need a tabernacle. Jesus is there. Jesus, this signal for the disciples and the signal for us is saying, all you need for a right relationship with God is to follow Jesus. That's all you need. That's all you need. Jesus is all we need. Second thing, as we close, 
how does Jesus accomplish all these things for us? How can He be our tabernacle? How can He be our greater prophet who finally sets our relationship right with God? How can He be righteous and be our sacrifice? How can, how can that, how can He bring us forgiveness of sin? The cross. You see, Peter and the disciples and, and us today, we have a problem with the cross. See, we believe that rejection, suffering, and death is not dignified, glorified, or appropriate. We believe that these things do not signify someone is right with God. We, we are tempted to believe that if somebody dies, if somebody has, is sick, if somebody is rejected, that that means they must be away from God. We have a hard time with the cross. But the truth of the matter is this. Suffering and humility do not hide glory. They reveal glory. Are you with me? They don't hide glory. They reveal glory. Peter's rebuke to Jesus was, it's not dignified for the Messiah to die on the cross. Comfort is dignified. Peter and the disciples believed rejection, suffering, and death on the cross is not dignified, glorified, and appropriate for the Son of God. And we believe that ourselves. Every person who ever lived, the cross is a stumbling block to the Jew, Paul says, and it is foolishness to the Greek. What do you mean to be right with God means I gotta take up a cross? That doesn't make any sense. I gotta suffer? We do not associate sacrifice with glory. We do not associate poverty with dignity. We do not associate humility with power. We do not associate meekness with royalty. The transfiguration shows us that suffering does not hide glory. It reveals glory. The King of Heaven will humiliate Himself by leaving the comfort of Heaven, taking on flesh, joining the family of sinful mankind, Allowing Himself to be rejected, spit upon, punched, whipped, beaten, mocked, nailed, stabbed, and killed by sinners that He has come to offer salvation for. And this reveals His glory. It doesn't hide it. So we must not be ashamed of the cross. It is the power of God to salvation. It is the glory of Jesus and if that is true of Jesus, that laying down His life reveals His glory, doesn't hide it, that is true of me. When you sacrifice for others, that does not reveal a lack of dignity, that reveals the glory of Christ. When we in church lay our preferences down for the good of the Gospel, for good of one another, we are not hiding our dignity. We are not hiding the glory of Jesus. We're exposing the glory of Jesus. Paul says it like this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what can we do? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. What can we do? What does the, trans the transfiguration call us to do? 
The transfiguration says this, Christian, your King is more glorious than you can ever imagine. To be in His presence, to see His glory, would terrify you. He's so glorious. And yet, He was willing to lay down His life and His preferences and His desires and His comfort to save sinners. So Christian, if that is our King, what, does his, what do His subjects do? We sacrifice. We live humble lives. We love the unlovable. That's what we do. Second thing we talked about a little earlier. Christian, what do we do when we see the transfiguration? Jesus comes down and He tells them, hey, don't tell anybody yet. They're not going to understand. It's going to, bring, it's going to bring confusion. Wait until I have been raised from the dead. Christian, what is stopping you from proclaiming the glory of God? Jesus has been raised. It's time to proclaim the glory of Jesus. And finally, Christian, non-Christian, do you understand that Jesus is everything you need to be right with God? Do you understand the Ten Commandments are up there and we can't obey them? Do you understand? That's, that's their purpose. Paul tells us that's their purpose to show us that we can't obey and that we need a Savior. Do you understand? Do you understand that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, Hebrews tells us there is no forgiveness of, of sin without the shedding of blood. That sacrificial system that was set up could never cover all of our sins. Do you realize that? And it's the blood of Jesus come. He died once for all to cover all of your sins. Do you understand that? Do you understand that your salvation is in His hands and it is all taken care of? He has all that is necessary and He has all that is sufficient for you to be right with God. Do you understand that? Christian, do you rest in that truth? Or do you? are you like Peter? Well, I'll do this for you, God. I'll do this for you, God. I'll try to contribute this, this. And God is telling Peter, Peter, just shut your mouth and be in the presence of God. Just relax in the presence of God. Jesus has it. Peter, Jesus has you. Christian, Jesus has you. Non-believer, Jesus does not have you. So this church calls, please see the glory of God. If your faith is not in Jesus, it's in things. If your faith is in things or things that you do, you're going to let yourself down. So this church calls you. Just like Jesus' message has been in the book of Mark. Repent from your sins. Turn from your sins. Follow Jesus.